2020 changed the trajectory of my life forever. I was 24, succeeding in a job that offered huge financial reward, yet I was unhappy and unfulfilled. My chronic illness, cystic fibrosis, had caused my lungs to bleed and it left me in a hospital bed. Now I left that job and created this podcast and I left that hospital bed to run marathons and prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we respond to them. On this show, we discuss the adversity that my guests and I face and how we overcome that adversity. This is a lot to talk about. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It's your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Driver. Of course, you can call me Brad. And I'm very excited to be here today. Today is an episode that come about as an opportunity not too long ago. And ever since the conversation come up, I've been very excited for it because what we're going to talk about here today is very important. We're here with a very important guest who has saved literally thousands of lives. Ladies and gentlemen, from your home, your car or wherever you are, give a very warm welcome to the one, the only Dr. Charlie Teo. Brad, you've done that so many times before. <laughs> <I can tell. laughs> mate, it's, um, it's second nature by now, you could say. How you doing, mate? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, good to hear. It's good to be here. Very nice to have you here in Wollongong. Um, mate, I've been hearing about you for many, many years. I kind of just picked you up then from lunch. We were having a little chat in the car and I was saying that as someone who grew up with CF, I was around the hospital system quite consistently. And I went to Sydney Children's Hospital in Ramwick. Now, you for many years have operated out of Prince of Wales, and, but just being around that hospital system and that space, you hear a lot of stories. And I remember consistently being told by my parents and by many people that we come into contact with that there was this man named Dr. Charlie Teo who was saving lives, a neurosurgeon who had, let's say, the courage to do what many people wouldn't. Mate, give us a little bit of an insight into to your story, what you do, and, and what your work has been over many years. Well, in a nutshell, uh, you're right. Uh, there are many stories about me, and I received a level of celebrity and acknowledgement and uh, uh, notoriety, I guess, uh, more than most. Uh, but I've always thought that the only thing I've done is what I think all doctors should do. I, I really don't know why I've been given the accolades that I've been given when all, all I do is treat patients well, mm. I respect patient autonomy, uh, I treat a patient like they were a member of my own family, and I often put myself in their shoes and think to myself, well, what would I want if I was in that position? And uh, I guess uh, the reason I've been sort of uh, identified as being someone special is because Many other doctors don't do that. Mm. And so that makes me stand out a little bit. But really, I promise you, Brad, I don't think I am a hero. I don't think I've done anything different to what I should have done. Uh, and, uh, you know, because of what I've done, I've had a very blessed career. I've, I've just loved my life and I've loved looking after all my patients. Man, that's a beautiful sentiment. I really like that. You, know, you talk about the position you're in as a neurosurgeon. That is not something that you fall into. That is a, correct me if I'm wrong here, but a very conscious choice that this is an area of medicine in which I want to study. 
and practice? It actually wasn't. In fact, I had a conscious choice not to practice neurosurgery. Wow. That's a surprise. Yeah. When I was a medical student and then when I was a young intern, resident, doing general terms, I was exposed to neurosurgery at my chagrin. I hated it. I knew that it was a very unforgiving specialty. I knew that if I'd made a mistake, someone could die. And uh, I really didn't understand neurosurgery. So I would avoid it like the plague. Mm. I I can remember in the emergency room at Nepean Base Hospital where I worked as an intern, if the patient came in with a head injury, I'd quickly slip their chart under the other person's and (laughs) and get the next one. I was just so fearful of neurosurgery and making a mistake. But you're right, it's all serendipity. Uh, I started doing paediatric surgery as my specialty. And then while I was doing paediatric surgery, the paediatric neurosurgery resident fell ill and I was asked to take over his chores. And so I was thrust into neurosurgery against my will and uh, uh, against my better judgment because I, I really didn't think I'd be a good neurosurgeon. And thankfully, I had great mentors and I found it incredibly stimulating and the rest is history. Wow, mate, that's incredible because it's something that is so complex. Mm. You would think that mm. it's so conscious. Yeah, yeah. But I guess you've come into the space of, of the medical world because you obviously had a, a willingness to help people. Was there any family history in that space? Yeah, absolutely. My father's a doctor. Sorry, he was a doctor. He's dead now. Uh, Sorry, yeah. My mother was a nurse. Uh, she's still alive, but she's in a nursing home, unfortunately, with dementia. Uh, but I guess, you know, they never really tried to push me into medicine. In fact, I can, I can, if I recall correctly, they kind of tried to uh, turn me off medicine. Mm. And so you, you're right, it was a calling uh, that, you know, I wanted to do all these other things. But when I got into medicine, I just, I loved it. From the minute I started my medical degree uh, until today, I've just lo- loved medicine. What is it about medicine that you think you loved? Well, without sounding too corny, it gives you the ability to help people. Mm. And I tell this one little story and I I tell it to young people so they understand why I do what I do and and why I think they should do something like I'm doing. And that is that I was fortunate enough to go on a camping trip through the Northern Territory and there are a few rich people on the trip from America and we got to know them very well, sitting around the campfire. That's when you really open up. For sure. And I will never forget that all three of them, during that one week on that tour, broke down in tears and felt that their lives were worthless because they'd clearly made a lot of money, but on reflection they couldn't see that they'd made any difference to the world or difference to other people. And in other words, their goal in life was to make money and at the end of the day they achieved that, but they couldn't, uh, no matter how hard they tried, justify their lives and, yeah. and feel like they had done something good in, in life and that's the one thing that you'll never have a problem with in medicine because your whole sure. job is helping other people and you know and, and fixing them or, or trying to extend their lives uh, so at the end of the day when you finish a day uh, as a doctor it's incredibly uh, you, you don't consciously think about this but if you'd sat down and consciously thought did I have a good day today the answer will always be yes because you've helped someone, you've diagnosed something, you've treated someone, you've held someone's hand, you've helped someone through a terrible part of their lives. So no matter how much money you make or don't make, at the end of the day you can feel happy that you've uh, 
you've contributed. Can I ask at what stage in your career, life, your journey, did that become conscious? Because that thing there, that purpose piece, that piece of understanding what real meaning will give you in your life, something that we spoke about just before we turned the mics on, I learned that lesson at 23. Yes. Where I had a very clear connection with a, with a gentleman who passed away that I met in hospital. And I learned pretty quickly what was going to give me a sense of real meaning from life. And I started to go on a journey of searching for that. Like I started trying different things. I, I thought that it was almost something that I'd find, but rather have learned in the process that it's something you develop yeah. by making some very conscious decisions. But I think for a lot of people listening, watching, something that they're really on the hunt for in their lives. Because a lot of people, and I think it's a big part of the mental health crisis we have at the moment, is people don't feel as though they have a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. You're right. Uh, my only uh, corollary to that is that not everyone can be a doctor and not no. everyone has the aptitude to be a doctor. And yet, you're right, people still at the end of the day want to feel like they've done something, achieved something. And I would say, though, at a very simple level, that one of the greatest purposes you can have in life is to be an incredible parent. Or, you know, for me, my parents serve exactly the greatest purpose was, in life. That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean... There has to be people out there who do the jobs that they don't quite like doing. Mm. Working in a factory line, for example, where you come back and think, really, have I done much today apart from help mm. make someone else money? And they're the people that have to search elsewhere for, which is sad because it'd be great if you could get it all in, in one hit. But you're right, those people have to search for meaning in being kind to someone doing a favour for someone during that day, sure. you know, being courteous on the road, uh, you know, helping someone across the road or raising your children. And, you know, at the, end, uh, at, the, at the end of one's life, I think all of us would like to think that we're leaving the world in a better place uh, mm. and in a better situation. I mean, it'd be really sad if at the end of the day you lay on your deathbed and you go, oh my God, what I've done is contributed to the world being a worse place uh, or For not sure. as well off that'd be that'd be pretty bad and i think that's an undeniable truth that you that only you know at the end of your life yeah yeah you know it's i guess it's for me it's been significant to think about how i can do that in my own life and i'm very blessed that i found storytelling to do that you obviously landed in the space of the medical field and particularly neurosurgery you said at the start of this podcast that you wouldn't consider yourself a hero I know that you won't agree with me, but I'm going to beg to differ because I think what you've done is something that not many people will ever be able to do, nor will have the courage to do. So I think you should be commended for that. There's a line in, in a Batman movie that stands out. <laughs> oh, I, was okay. a, I was a Batman fan as a kid, right? Right. There's actually many lines around this idea of um, what a hero is, or what right. a hero does. Right. There's one particular line. I can't remember exactly where in the movie, but I believe in The Dark Knight, they said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing here, that... Um, a hero will do what needs to be done, even if it's at the detriment of themselves. Now, you've landed in a space of hot water now, right, where unfortunately due to some people having an issue with what you've done, you cannot operate in Australia at the moment. And unfortunately, because of that, people will lose their lives because a person like Dr. Charlie Teo isn't around to do the surgeries that could potentially be life-changing and life-saving. Talk to me about this position that you're in at the moment and, and what's happening and what needs to move forward and what needs to change for you to be able to go back and do your job very well. Yeah, well, I didn't really want to be negative, but 
now that you've brought it up, I was going to bring it up anyway. Yeah. And when you said to me, when was that aha moment where you realized that, uh, you know, you wanted to help people and that was your calling? It was actually later on in life. It was actually when everyone started trying to destroy me and I was fighting this battle. And I thought to myself, well, hang on. Why am I doing those difficult cases when it puts my career at risk? It is not good for my health. Uh, it certainly puts me at risk medico-legally for being sued because the complication rates are very high. I don't have my colleagues' support, so I don't have consensus. I certainly don't have e EBM, evidence-based medicine, because I'm doing something that no one else does. Why in the hell would I do that? It's not good for me, my health, my career, my profession. It's just terrible. And then I thought, oh, hang on, I'm doing it because that person needs me to do it. And I really get off on giving people hope where no one else is giving them hope. And I honestly believe that there is hope. So, you know, a lot of my colleagues are critical because they think I give false hope. You know, the whole concept of false hope. And there's no such thing as false hope, of course. Hope is hope. But what they're saying is that I give false promises or I give false information. And, you know, if you are always being uh, self-reflective, then you do have to think about that. When you get a bad outcome, you have to think to yourself, well, hang on, did I do that for the patient's best interest? Did I do it uh, based on what I believe was the right thing for, by the patient. And you do a lot of soul searching and at the end of the day, you've got to live with yourself that you've made the right decision. Even though the outcome may not be good, it was the right decision off that person, uh, uh, off a person, that person, the operation. So now I'm in deep water, yes, but uh, there's another saying that says, no one likes bad news, but everyone hates a surprise. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the truth is that it's not a surprise. From the minute I came back to Australia from America in 1999, they have been trying to persecute me and, and malign me right from the first few weeks after I came back. So I knew that my colleagues were after me. I knew that I was creating more enemies than friends. Uh, and I knew that one day they would strategize well enough to bring me down. In fact, the thing that I... I guess find most solace in is that right now I'm kind of proud that I survived the last 25 years. I mean, sure. really, when you think about it, given that I virtually had a lawyer, you know, helping me out every day of my life for the last 25 years, I've had complaints from my doctor colleagues, like virtually every week there's some complaint. Uh, for my entire career here. The fact that I've actually survived and got to this stage where they got me when I'm 65 years of age, you know, it's, it's not such a bad thing to be ashamed of or uh, uh, that, you know, that, I, that they eventually won. Man, I think it's something to be incredibly proud of because I've, I've done a little bit of listening about your story and I listened to particularly the, the Mark Boris pod, which I thought was an incredible conversation and I'm a great fan of Mark and the stuff that he does. I think he's a great fella. And what stood out to me, and I'm pretty sure it was from that conversation, was you talking about the fact that you would have patients come to you who had been told on numerous occasions, this isn't operable, mm -hmm. unfortunately you will die. Mm -hmm. Now I know if I put myself in those, those people's shoes, if I put myself in the shoes of those families or even from a patient perspective, I would do anything for a chance to live life, mm. especially a life 
that has, has been very shortly lived. We're talking about young people. The fact that you've had the courage, but also the, the honesty, you've given them the honesty of this is what the potential outcomes are. And I remember you speaking about a number of potential outcomes and explaining that to every one of your patients. But the fact that you've had the courage to say, I'm going to put my hand up and know that I'm going to be pushed to the side or unfavoured by those other doctors and colleagues because I'm going to do what they're not willing to do, mate, for me is, is fucking courage. And, and I'm glad that there are people like you and it breaks my heart that right now, whilst you have to sit on the sidelines, people will lose their lives because others aren't willing to give it a chance. Well, it's even worse than that, I had to say, Brad, because what I've seen in the last two years since I haven't been able to operate and since they've uh, successfully stopped me from operating is good colleagues, talented surgeons, not offering surgery because they've seen what's happened to me. So, yeah, so the worst thing that's happened to me is that it tells a very, very strong uh, uh, warning, sends a very strong warning to other doctors if you step outside the box, if you offer contrary second opinions, then we will get you. Because if we can get Charlie Teo, we can get anyone. Uh, so I've seen cases, I just saw one today, uh, of a tumour that I know this doctor could have taken it out and he chose to just biopsy it because he didn't want to increase his risk of being condemned and uh, identified by his colleagues as being a, uh, a risk taker or as doing something contrary to their beliefs. So it's, it's, it's a very sad message. And it's not any neurosurgeons too. I'm sure that other doctors have seen what's happened to me and thought, Jesus, thank God I'm not pushing the envelope. Thank God I'm not outside the box. And thank God I'm not you know, taking on the uh, uh, governing bodies and the fraternity because you know, they can get Charlie Teo. They'll, they'll get me one day. Mm. So it's a really bad... It's a bad turning point in Australian medicine that they have succeeded in uh, stopping me from working in Australia. It's a very sad outcome. Do you think that you'll ever be able to operate in Australia again? Oh, look, I don't know. I'd like to think so, uh, but it might be a bit unrealistic. I recently applied for assistant privileges. Just so you know what that means, it means that I've got no income. I've had no income for two years, so what I've done... A, a nice friend and a colleague who's an orthopedic surgeon said, Charlie, why don't you come and be my assistant and you'll get assistant fees. I go, oh my God, that's great, thank you. So uh, we went to his hospital and I applied for assistant fees. Now, to give you some background, a GP can get assistant fees. You don't have to be a surgeon. All you're doing is cutting sutures and helping the surgeon. Mm. Well, the executives at the hospital said, yeah, no, don't worry, we'll get you assistant fees, you can come and work here. But when they presented to the medical advisory committee full of doctors, they all said, no, we don't want him here. So I'm telling you, I can't even work as an assistant in this country. Uh, That's how bad things have got. You know what? It's obviously very different because we're talking about the medical field, but there's a thing in current society called cancel culture. Mm, Yes. And it's, it's a real shame because what we've seen is we've seen people who jump on the bandwagon of those who are happy to point the finger and throw stones because they're so scared of being persecuted themselves, they just prefer to be so inauthentic. Yes. And they prefer to do not what's right, but what's easy. Yeah. And for me, that's a real issue in society. It is a real issue, Brad, and I don't know how we're going to address it because it's all about dissemination of information through the social media networks and, and... 
And the worst thing about dissemination of information is that, that information is not peer-reviewed, it's not checked, fact-checked. And yeah. so you can get someone accusing someone else of something you know, despicable, like pedophilia, for example. And the only reason that they're accusing that person of pedophilia is because they want to destroy their reputation and their life. And they know full well that it's untrue. And they know full well that it's, uh, it's got a secondary gain for them. But they do it because what happens is that once you label that person as a pedophile uh, and it's spread across media channels mm. and the internet, you can't wipe that off your mark, book anywhere. It, it's, it'll always be there. Someone, when they look up your name, will always see, oh my God, really, he was accused of uh, shop, shoplifting or he was accused of you know, uh, sexual molestation or something. And so how do we address that? Because in previous days before the internet and, and social media uh, platforms, uh, you know, you could write a vile story about something that was totally untrue and it'd be in a newspaper, but there was this saying in my day that you probably have never even heard, and that is front pages of newspaper one day, but the lining of a... Uh, a birdcage the next day or a fish yeah. and chip wrapper the next day. Yeah. And and we would. We'd just get on with life and someone would accuse you of something, you'd say, no, that's not true, and then the whole thing would die down and the truth would eventually come out. But the worst thing about cancel culture and what we're seeing today is that you can accuse someone of something terrible, it may be completely untrue, but it now it is, it is now part of that person's uh, identity. It's um, very un, it's very hard to unweave the social narrative. Yes. And it's I think the issue is it's too easy for people to jump on the bandwagon because now now they get social clout for it. Well, if you're yeah. one of those people who jump on the bandwagon and then you're protesting for what this group of people think is right, then that group of people love you because you yeah. support their narrative. Brad, and it's worse than that. Then you not only get social clout out of it, you get reward and you get uh, vocational... Uh, KPLs from it. Mm. So a lot of journalists, it's all about clicks. And yeah. it's all about clicks. So it's not about the truth. It's not about uh, an op-ed. It's not about uh, something that requires a lot of uh, research. Or It's all about writing something that's going to get clicks. So it can be the most bizarre, untruthful thing in the world. And of course, you can deny it later on, but it will get the clicks. So how how do we address that? I mean, uh, I mean, how do how do we get a how do, how do we how do the public know what the truth is, and how do they know how to disregard you know what to disregard and what to regard? It's such a challenge now because I think in a world in which we're pumped with so much information, people yes. don't do their own research. They they will believe a headline because there's so many headlines to read. Right, we're all guilty of it. When we're I read a headline, what's the first? What's your default? You believe it. You believe it. And sure, later on you might question it mm. and you might do some research, but the first thing you do is you believe it. Or it at least leaves some form of imprint in that that's something you go to when you think about that person or that topic. Yeah. The only way that I can think, and this is well above my pay grade, to stop this, this bandwagon and this cancel culture behaviour is to actually... Um, not only challenge the people who choose to jump on the bandwagon and speak false and sort of weave false narratives, but rather to punish them. And there has to be some greater punishment for people who willingly spread um, lies 
and and willingly become a part of the narrative without doing the research. No, you can't look. A journalist wrote some terrible things about me about being being a reckless uh, surgeon and operating on the wrong side of the brain. It was completely slanderous and completely defamatory, and it would have taken that journalist one phone call to realise that it was defamatory and mm. the untruth. One phone call. So one of the cases was in America, and one phone call would have said, oh, Dr. Teo was actually taken off that lawsuit. Uh, he was found to be not at fault at all. It was the fault of the radiology department that mislabeled the X-ray. One phone call would have done that. And, but that journalist did not make that phone call. And so since that article, everyone has said to me, oh, you can sue for defamation, you can sue for defamation. Do you realise how much it costs to sue for defamation? How long it takes, the emotional cost on someone. And those journalists know that. They know that a private citizen who's not a movie star or some rich uh, person has Buckley's of suing them. Uh, because they just don't have the money, the time, the resources. Uh, and then at the end of the day, even if you win, you spent so much money, it's a pyrrhic victory anyway. And the truth, you know, the sad truth of the matter is, especially when it's a, someone involved in one of those big companies that have very big budgets, in the process of finding yeah. it, there'll be many more stories. Yeah. And there'll be many more things that add to the, the negative and the untrue narrative yeah. that take just as much a toll on the process. Yeah. You know, you said there never take on a company that buys ink by the barrel. <laughs> I like that. You know? I like that. I think that's words of wisdom for anyone. Yeah. I have to ask, you spoke there about the emotional toll, the emotional cost. Mate, as far as I can see on the surface level, you're a happy character. You got in the car today, we started chatting, having a laugh, having a talk straight away. Mate, I met you very briefly at the start of the year, which you wouldn't even remember at Humankind at the speaking summit. Very brief meeting, but I remember walking away. No, but you had your girlfriend with you. Didn't I did. You? Yeah, and I do remember her. Yeah, and I remember because she's far better looking than I she's am. She's better looking than Way you. Way better looking than I am. And I remember saying to her, "What a good energy you get from Charlie Teo. He's got a, he's got an aura. He's one of those guys you can tell he's a good guy. He's got energy for people. You are very happy, very outgoing on the surface. Yes, yeah, so I'm. I'm very lucky that I've got that good mental strength. And uh, here's what I put it down to. And you'll understand this. Not many people understand, but you will. How dare I complain or be upset about my life when I don't have brain cancer? Mm. And every day, remember, I'm reminded of that. So most people are reminded of their plight in life and that others are worse off than them. Maybe once a year or once when they see someone starving in Africa or... You know, that reminds them. But remember, my job is to look after people who are diagnosed with brain cancer. And so four or five or six or ten times a day, it reminds me that I need to be thankful that I have my health and that I don't have brain cancer. So uh, I, I would be ashamed of myself if I ever felt sorry for my plight. Uh, and and you know, I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's a good situation. I I I, I now long, no, can no longer practice my uh, the thing I love most. Mm. I can't make a living. Uh, I've had my reputation slurred, uh, and uh, you know I was walking through the jungles of Fiji uh, a few months ago, and they recognised me after the 60 minutes segment and mm. you know they 
there's no place I can go now in the world where someone doesn't know that uh, I'm this terrible or think that I'm this terrible surgeon who's money hungry and uh, and reckless. Yeah. It's sad, isn't it? That's really, really bad. It's really sad. Now, the Australian public, on the other hand, uh, given that I've got a long history in Australia, have been very kind. You've been very kind to invite me on here. Obviously, you don't believe all the slanderous stories. And most of the public have been incredibly kind. Yeah. But isn't it funny how so many people who choose to be negative can forget those little things that you've done over the years? So we're talking about not only you're a neurosurgeon, you've got your own foundation. My, my partner, Soph, the very memorable one, is from Tamora. And so Tamora's, for anyone who doesn't know, four and a half hours off the coast in Wollongong here into the country. Right. Now, I was talking to her mom on the phone yesterday and she was saying that she knows multiple, multiple families who have very good things to say about you for what you've done for people in the country who wouldn't often have access to the kind of surgery that you were able to do. You know, I've heard much about your work pro bono overseas. So it's so easy for people to forget all of those things that you've done, not for money, not for fame, not for any good fortune, but rather out of the goodness of your heart and to come back to that thing that we spoke about before, purpose. Mm that meaning in life yeah. so mate it's it's easy for me to understand where you come from because and maybe as you said i am a little bit privileged because i've been in the hospital system and i've seen that side of it but mate i'm telling you now when you and i think it's so powerful what you said the perspective that you have and i think in life it is it is certain to say that we'll all face challenges we'll all face things that are um titled i guess or displayed as huge adversity for us to overcome and for many people that will be health is issues for some it will be mental health issues or other issues in their life mm. but there's someone that i go back and think of consistently i remember my parents saying to me not not too long ago that for everything that i've been through with my cf i've never once complained <laughs> and i remember saying to them how can you complain when you've had the experiences that we've had. And I remember meeting a gentleman, his name was Krishnan, in hospital when I was nine. because same age as me, nine years of age. And I remember being in a room with three other young guys who were all about a similar age to me. And Krishnan had leukemia. He was across from me, in the, the bed across from me. And I remember every night, one of my parents fell asleep beside my bed. The other fell asleep in the room down the hall. And they'd cycle every night. So mm. it was either mum beside me or dad beside me. I remember that every meal, they went and got me a meal that I wanted to eat. Oh. They would do things with me all day at hospital. Wow. All my mates would come up, all my people would come up. And I remember every day I looked across at Krishnan and there were no family, oh. no friends, no one there to support him. Oh. So he'd become one of ours. For that two weeks I was in there, he was like a brother. Oh. My parents fed him. Um, because of the, the chemo and radio, he quite often wet the bed. They'd buy him new pyjamas. They'd make sure his sheets were changed. Oh, he got treated like he was their own child. Right. Now, I remember thinking and, and knowing full well, at that point in my life, I was in there for a tune-up just to make sure that my stuff was going well. Yeah. This kid was fighting cancer. And i never once seen him for everything that he went through without a smile on his face. Yeah. And I remember actually getting moved to another ward the last couple of days of my stay and he broke out of his ward to come and find me to really? hang out for the afternoon <laughs> until the nurses come and grabbed him and took him back. <laughs> and I remember saying to my family, 
I could never complain exactly. because I had it so much easier yeah, exactly. than so many do. Yeah. And yeah. it gives you a beautiful perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and it's, look, there's very few good things about brain cancer, but one good thing about it is that it makes you appreciate, you know, your health and what you've got. For sure. Yeah. Talk to me about some of the experiences that you've had over the course of the years that have, that have shaped this love for what you do, the experiences that you've learned from. I know you've not only operated, as you said, within Australia, but over in America too and, and all around the world. Um, talk yeah. to me about some of the experiences that have been really meaningful for you. It's, I, look, it's hard to identify one particular patient because they're all very special, but it's the patients. It's the patients who name their dog after you or name their next child after you or write you a letter and you, you haven't bought them much time. You've bought them maybe 16 weeks of life and that's all and they still write to you before they die. It's the families that uh, when their child dies, they must be in the worst place in the world and yet they still have time to call you up and thank you. Uh, it's the courage of patients who, like you, just never complain and soldier on. And they know they've got this formidable enemy, brain cancer, and, and, and they read the statistics and they Google it and they still maintain this positive sort of attitude that they're going to beat it. Uh, it's the ability to disseminate that knowledge to other neurosurgeons and uh, it's the uh, ability to be able to change... Uh, the standard of medicine in a developing country. I mean, I'm telling you, it's, it is the most rewarding job. I, I, I'm sure a lot of people say that their job is the most rewarding job, but you can't get much more reward, rewarding than you know, saving a human life or changing the, 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 changing the perspective of some other person uh, on how to treat patients and minimise you know, collateral damage and stuff. Uh, and, you know, to change the level, the entire level of neurosurgical, uh, uh, a serv a neurosurgical service in, a, in an entire country. I won a distinguished uh, service award from, uh, uh, from Cuba, uh, given out by Fidel Castro himself. And uh, all I did was go to, I went to Cuba for about five or six years, volunteered every year to go there and uh, basically increase the level of neurosurgical service in Cuba. And I introduced neuroendoscopy there and I uh, you know, showed them how to do minimally invasive operations and I got this Distinguished Service Award and I thought to myself, you know, I love the fact that I can change someone's life, a person, but to be able to change the course of medicine in an entire country, is a, it's, it's a real honour. It, it's a real honour and a real privilege to be able to do that. Uh, so, look, I, you know, I, I know everyone can't be neurosurgeons and don't, doesn't want to be a neurosurgeon, but, boy, neurosurgery has been... So, so rewarding for me. It, it, it makes up for all the negative stuff, all, all the, uh, uh, you know, all the uh, antagonism from colleagues, uh, all the vilification, all the persecution by governing bodies, uh, all the tall poppy syndrome stuff from the media. Uh, it, it fails into insignificance compared to the positives that have come out of my career. Mm. Mate, it's it's astounding for me to listen to like it's it's just so interesting and the thing that keeps coming to my head that i that i have to ask you as you said brain cancer is so unforgiving and i can imagine that even in successful scenarios brain cancer being as relentless as it, as it is often comes back in a lot of patients what's been you know how, how do you emotionally separate yourself from the 
the lives that these people then go on to live. Because I can imagine that would be very difficult not to be emotionally attached to every patient who comes through the door. That doesn't mean you can't care for them, but you, you can't take that home either. You're a father too. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very good question, but it's a question that uh, is difficult to answer because it all depends on how much emotional fortitude and resilience you have right from the get-go. And if you don't have much and your life is not full fulfilled and you've got a lot of stress from your home life or something else, then of course, you know, you're starting off behind the eight ball. Mm. But this is how I see it. I was criticized widely by my uh, mentor for ca- calling people by their first names and getting them to call me by my first name. In other words, dropping the barrier, becoming friends with your patients. Uh, in fact, when I failed my exam, not once, not twice, twice I failed my exam twice the feedback I got from my mentors was that Charlie you know uh, it takes more than just knowledge to become a neurosurgeon you have to be a certain type of person you're going to be held up in high esteem by society and you've got to behave appropriately and that doesn't mean riding motorbikes it doesn't mean going to nightclubs until one o'clock in the morning and it certainly doesn't mean calling people by their first name and getting them to call you by your first name and anyway, after that, uh, after that interaction with my mentor, I, I, I felt my initial feeling was, how dare you and how arrogant and, you know, how pompous and, and everything. But on reflection, he was trying to help me. And what I mean by that is that uh, if you can maintain a certain distance from your patients, it does give you more professional longevity because mm. you're not going to be beaten down and you're yeah. not going to get such emotional stress because you've separated yourself you you don't see them as a person you see them as a patient you don't see them as someone uh, you know you just see them as a case the next case and that gives you a uh, enormous amount of protection mm. when you break down the barriers or, or destroy the barriers and you see them as a person, you treat them like a member of your own family, uh, you have them over the house for dinner, uh, you share tears with them, then that is an emotional uh, uh, burden, a Mm. huge emotional burden. Well, I've done that and I've felt the burden of it because I have become friends with most of my patients Here's what they don't tell you. What they don't tell you is that when you do let those barriers down and you invite them into your life and you get into their life and you become, uh, they become part of you, the success stories give you so much energy, emotional energy and emotional strength that it allows you to then you know, put up with the, the, the downs. For sure. So I think... I think you're right. You're probably right that there are more downs than ups. And so you gradually start losing your emotional sort of strength. But, uh, but I must say that I've had so much satisfaction, joy, love, uh, appreciation from my patients that it makes up for all the, uh, uh, the sadness and the melancholia from patients who don't do well or patients who end up dying. I've got a big theory, and this isn't based on medicine. This isn't based on um, science or knowledge or or anything that I could study or fully understand um, and confirm. But rather, I have an understanding and a a thought base based off experience, my own life experience, around 
the importance of hope and the importance of calm energy. Mm. Now, I remember walking into every eight to 10 weeks into Dr. John Morton's rooms at mm. Sydney Children's Hospital. He was my CF um, pediatrician. I remember walking into his rooms and feeling so calm and relaxed because the first thing that he'd bring up, not every time that I seen him, was not something to worry about, something that would scare me, something that felt confronting. But every time I walked into those rooms, he'd say, how many medals have you won this month, my boy? Because <laughs> he knew I was an athlete. Oh. And I remember walking into those rooms and feeling a sense of hope every time I was in that hospital. And it's probably why I have a great relationship with hospitals still, is that this man deeply cared about me yeah. and my outcomes, but he also had a very positive outlook. So I want to tell you a story here, Charlie, because it's, it's been the most influential lesson I could have ever learned in my life. So when I was born with CF at the time, I was born in 1996, my parents were as prepared as you could be to bring a child into the world, like so prepared, had the dream family home built, had both worked multiple jobs, absolutely no debt, in a position in which they could provide me with all the love, care and opportunity a child could ever want. I was their first child. So when I was born on the 12th of April, 1996, plans on track. They're ecstatic, so excited. I'm born seemingly really healthy. And three weeks later, um, as Mike Tyson so often said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> when they got the results for the Guthrie's test, it just took the wind out of them because they didn't know what CF was. They didn't have any understanding of it. And all of a sudden, all these plans that they had, hopes and dreams for my future, mm. were hanging in the balance because of something called cystic fibrosis. They started to educate up, learn about it, started to hear a lot of stories. A lot of those stories were negative. But they got to their first ever CF specialist appointment. I won't name the doctor at the time, but they sat in front of him. And the first thing he said to them, not even hello, how are you going? First thing he said was, your son would be better off with a terminal illness that would kill him or he would get over because this will ruin his life. <sighs> now, what my parents done next has defined my whole life. They both stood up, looked him in the eye and said, you'll never see us or our son again and walked out of the room. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, my parents taught me this incredible lesson that what you believe is what you become, yes. right? And I truly believe that. It's had the biggest impact on my life. And they found Dr. Morton because he shared a more positive, optimistic, and let's go for it attitude than right. any other doctor did. Right. That for me, and I, I acknowledge that I've been somewhat lucky in the sense that some of the challenges that can come for people early in their life with CF weren't immediate challenges for me. I was able to build a foundation, a level of resilience to tackle what CF has challenged me with. But it's that positive energy and that hope that's allowed me to get to a space in 27 where I run marathons. I've been able to get out of hospital beds with bleeding lungs and run marathons weeks later. I've been able to do what I do and I'm as healthy as I am now. The reason that I believe I'll, I'll be a centurion. So when I look back and I think about the importance of that hope as oh played. Oh my God, that's so important. Mate, I love, I love that that's the way you tackle things yeah. with your patients. Because for me, as a patient, as someone who has been in those rooms, not for um, the purpose of, of the patients that you have, but as someone with cystic fibrosis, it, it had the biggest impact on my life in the most positive way. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, if I was a businessman and I struck him a million-dollar deal and made a million dollars, that would be fantastic as a businessman. I'm telling you, to have a patient 20 years later come back and remember you and thank you for giving them hope and treating them like a person, that is a million dollars. I mean, really, mm. you just it doesn't get any better than that. 
the fact that you can remember John's name, the fact that you felt comfortable in his presence, I mean, what a fantastic... That guy should be incredibly proud. And, uh, and uh, you know, that is job satisfaction. For sure. Absolute job satisfaction. And, mate, it was emotional for me. I heard... So I left the, the children's clinic when I was 16, 17. I remember hearing, um, wasn't long after, maybe six months after, he actually passed of motor neurons disease. Got him. Oh, really? Within about six months, he passed. And I remember being oh. devastated, mate, because oh. I was like, that guy done so much for so many people. No one could help him in the end. Oh. But it's but it's true. It was a connection built off off real purpose, real love, yeah. um, hope that had been given to me. And it, yeah. it, I, mean, just, well, I have so many patients come in and go, you know, they've been seen by some other doctor. They've had a biopsy. And I say, who was your doctor? Uh, actually, we don't know. They don't know their doctor. The doctor never visited them. I mean, how can that doctor have any sort of self-respect or job satisfaction? I mean, they might be making a lot of money. They probably are. But, gee, it would be a terrible life, that. Uh, To me, the the payment, the reward is when you can change someone's life for the better. Even if you can't save their life, even if you don't buy them extra time, even if you get a complication from surgery... You know, with the complications that I get where they don't even wake up from surgery, uh, families have said to me, Charlie, please don't feel bad about it. Bob was, wasn't prepared to die without a fight. And what you did is you gave him autonomy. You gave him respect. You gave him the ability to say, okay, I'm going to die, but I'm going to go down fighting. And, uh, you know, that is, that's job satisfaction. Yeah, it's beautifully said. Mate, I have to ask, we've spoken a lot about your profession. Mm. Um, you know, I listened to a guy named Ben Crow. Ben Crow is is a really influential mind in the space of getting the most out of your life, building purpose, really centering a lot of his work around three questions. And he spent his life working with athletes. Those questions are: Who am I? What do I want? And how do I get there? <laughs> and a lot of that "Who am I?" question is broken down into two things: We are both human beings and human doings. And the human doing is is what you do professionally. Um, but I get that there's this whole other side to you, you know, Charlie Teo is, is a human being who has things he loves, things that he loves doing, and I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about who you are outside of the operating theatre. I guess there are two or three real passions in my life. Uh, family and friends, obviously. I have four amazing daughters who have been incredibly supportive and loving to me over the, over the years. Uh, one of them has now given me a grandson, so he's now part of the family. I have a partner, uh, Tracy, who is like God's gift to me. She uh, is incredibly supportive and, and strong and always there, uh, unconditional love, and you know that's been amazing. Uh, that's one passion, family and friends. Another passion is animals. I mean, I just love animals. Uh, Tracy has helped me uh, become vegan. Uh, uh, not for health reasons necessarily, not for environmental reasons necessarily, but simply because uh, I think most humans realise that animals feel pain, and animals are sentient beings that uh, you know that uh, want to live. Uh, so uh, animals are a real passion uh, in my life, and finally, uh, respecting your body. And what I mean by that is that I just hate the fact that people abuse their bodies because it's really, at the end of the day, the only thing we own. 
You don't own your house, I'm sorry. They can take it off you any time. You, you don't own the clothes on your back. You don't, there's nothing that you really own except for your body. Mm. And uh, I get really sad when I see people abusing the very thing that uh, is giving them life. Uh, getting overweight, uh, sedentary lifestyle, uh, stressful situations, uh, uh, dangerous drugs, uh, uh, poor diet, uh, smoking, drinking. It's just like, are you kidding? And uh, I mean, that that is your only uh, possession, real possession. Mm. You should be respecting it, not, sure. not abusing it like that. Uh, so I really pride myself in keeping myself fit. Uh, I mean, every day I do some form of exercise. Uh, What's your go-to? Go-to is kayaking. Yeah, uh, wow. Yeah, because, uh, mainly, mainly because of the uh, uh, spiritual uh, strength it gives me. Yep. You get out early in the mornings. There's no one else on the water. The city's just barely waking up. Uh, and the only thing you hear is the, the paddle in the water. It's a very, very uh, spiritually empowering uh, pastime. And on top of that, of course, you're exercising as well. For sure. And there's something about being in nature early yes. that does it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that and, I mean, the worst thing about having a partner who's 16 years younger is that you've got, <laughs> you've got she's, she does all this exercise. She's got a gym and she runs every day. and she does, So I, I feel compelled to keep up with her, yeah. uh, which I'm finding very difficult, but, you know, it's, it's keeping me... A little bit healthier. Mate, I must say though that you're 65. You do not look 65. I was when I listened to the interview with Mark. Right. I was blown away. But Mark's very similar to that. Yeah, Mark is incredibly fit. When I remember, I remember meeting him and he told me how old he was and made nearly knocked me off my chair. I'm like, no way. Yeah, yeah. But I've got two parents who are very similar to that, who are both in their 50s, but look remarkable. They look younger than I do. Yeah. And it's, it's all around the way that they treat their body. I think so. Uh, and, and stress is really bad. And, you know, we all have to face stress every day, of course. But uh, you don't want to let it define you. Uh, it's, it's not really what happens to you. It's the way you respond to it. Mm. And so, of course, we're all going to be stressed with, you know, finances, deaths, uh, illness. Uh, we're all going to be stressed that way. But you've got, you can't let it sort of... Uh, define you you've got to uh, respond that's in, in a way that doesn't destroy your very soul and destroy your very health uh, so all this stress that i've been going through i'm telling you i'm, I'm so proud of myself because i wake up every day happy uh, i see I, I see all the things that i have and not the things i don't have in, in fact you know being i haven't been poor not i'm not i'm not crying poor but you know i mean i haven't had i haven't been unemployed for so long in my entire life yeah. Even as a kid, I was always earning money, you know, doing little odds and ends and the milk run and things like that. So this is the first time I've, I haven't been able to make money. And I must say, I see the positive side of it. I've really appreciated it when I, you know, when I can, uh, all the finer things in life that I took for granted before, like going to a restaurant or buying, or, you know, buying a, uh, a new motorbike or, you know, just... just uh, You've got to see that even those negative things can be turned into positives. For sure. Uh, I always say that for me, the three things that I, in a world full of uncontrollables, the three things I try to control every day 
is the perspective I choose to have towards the things that are happening in my life and happening to me, the beliefs that I have about myself and what I'm capable of and the way that I act. Mm. And for me, those three things, if I can control those every day, no matter what's happening in my life, because similar to you, I've been unemployed for essentially three and a half years now. (laughs) So it's like, it's it's a challenging position where I've sold my house and done a few things and that's about to change soon where there's some more consistency ahead of me. But it definitely tests you. It tests you, doesn't it? When yeah. you don't have the the power of choice to just go, I'm going to yeah. do this or I'm going to do that. Yeah, exactly. And the budget. I've never really had to budget before. That's something yeah. that I find... Uh, actually, no, it's, it's good. I mean, I, I enjoy budgeting now because, you know, again, when, when you've got enough money to buy something, you feel, oh my, it, it, it seems to be worth more then. For sure. Yeah. It gives you a sense of appreciation for those small things. Yeah, it really does. It really does. I have to ask Charlie... So many people will be listening to this, watching this, and as I am, very inspired by your story. Over 65 years, having done what you've done, having had children, partners, experiences in life, which many people will share, but some will never get to experience. If you could give one message to the audience and encourage them to act on that message and make it a part of who they are and the way they live their life, what would it be? Oh... There are too many messages I want. <laughs> okay, so if it had to be one message, what would it be? I guess it's that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, everyone, by definition, is going to face adversity at some stage in their life. And, uh, and uh, you've just got to understand that it's all part of living. It's all part of that whole roller coaster. You know, for every up, there's going to be a down. And uh, that which doesn't kill you will just make you stronger and make you a better person, make you more appreciative of all the good times. Because um, I've been through all these terrible times uh, professionally. Not Oh, well, you know, I went through a divorce as well, and that's terrible. Uh, uh, and yet, again, uh, at the end of the day, I think I'm a stronger person for all those downs. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. It's that resilience piece, right? It is, and it's something that you can't, I don't know, it's very hard to teach it. Uh, it has to be lived. Well, because how, but Charlie, how often do we hear people say to us, you know, I hear the message all the time. This isn't important, focus on this in your life. Yes. Or don't try to accumulate things of, of a material nature. You know, accumulate experiences, moments, memories, spend time with the people you love, look after your health. But how often do we hear those things and we go... Oh, but a nice car would be nice. I know, um, I know. Or a big house would feel good. I know. Or, you know, the cheap thrill of a shitty meal or drinking or people who yeah. partake in recreational drugs. Well, that would be nice. They have to experience the challenge and the hurt and the pain that comes with it, the yeah. suffering. Yeah. To get very conscious about why that isn't for them. Yeah. And I don't know how we can better educate people to not make those mistakes, but it feels as though a lot of those lessons have to be lived. Yes, so right. I mean, that last point that you made, the three things that you like living by, the last one is how I act. Well, I'm telling you, I've read all those books about how one should act. I've read all the philosophical sort of uh, teachings of gurus saying that, you know, you should never make assumptions. And, uh, but it's so easy to say and, and so difficult to do. I see myself making assumptions all the time and I think to myself, God, that's the wrong thing and it's, it's just not good for anyone. And yet you still continue to do it. I mean, I still get road rage. 
And, yeah, you know, I mean, how bad is that? Because yeah. road rage is something that's terrible because, you know, you think about the number of times and you've done something silly on the road and it's because you've had a bad day or because someone's sick and you're in a hurry to get to see them or something. And and for someone to judge you as being an idiot when really you're not an idiot, you just have, have had a bad day, is terrible. And yet I'm guilty of it. If I see someone do something foolish or silly on the road, I get upset, you know. And, for sure. And uh, and all that does is up. It's not it's not good for. It's not good for me because it doesn't affect them. I, I'm upset with them, but they've moved on and they. And for all I know, they didn't even know they did something discourteous <laughs> or or something rude on the road. And uh, so yeah, no. Uh, look, I guess the message to your listeners is that. You know, you're going to be listening to lots of podcasts. You're going to be reading lots of books. You're going to be speaking to people who are wiser and older than you. And it all gets a little bit too confusing and it all gets a little bit hard because, you know, at the you do know the, the way you're meant to act and you do know what they're saying is right, but it's bloody hard to actually, you know, uh, walk the walk For uh, sure. and not just talk the talk. Yeah. Now, the last thing I want to ask you, Charlie, before I let you go, is over the course of the, the many years that you've been in the media and had attention on your name, there seems to be this, this narrative where the media and the people who haven't liked you have really liked to, to question and try to almost break down your character. There's always like, you should, as you said before, you shouldn't be riding a motorbike, shouldn't be out doing this, shouldn't be um, the cool, relaxed, calm, collected guy because... That's not how you're supposed to act in that space. You're supposed to be very rigid and professional. I can imagine that when people are attacking your character consistently, it may encourage you to ask some questions of yourself. And I think what's really important is, as we said, the answers that come and then how you act on that. But I love that you are still you. For all of the, the grief you've gotten, all the times that people have attacked you and challenged your character and who you are as a human, what is it that's allowed you to stay very true to who you are? Uh, it, it probably boils down to my mum. And my mum taught me a lot of uh, rules of life that uh, maintain the, uh, the moral compass. Mm. And things like, you know, you don't have to follow the mob. Uh, everyone has something to offer you. Even the most menial person in the, in the most menial job has something to offer you. Uh, never think that your station is above anyone else's. You know, those sort of real, yeah. really grounding sort of moral truths uh, that she taught me. Uh, so I give a lot of credit to mum for giving me that sort of uh, good early perspective on life. Oh, uh, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. You know, all those yeah, sorts sure. of... And, and I, I find myself repeating them all the time uh, to myself and to others. Uh, uh, so she gave me the, the uh, yeah, the, uh, what is it, the, the platform, the basis, the foundation on which I've uh, tried to act and tried to act well. Mate, I love it. I love it. It's been such a privilege, mate, to sit down, honestly. Like I said, for many years, even as a young man, I heard many of the brilliant stories and the success stories of, of your work. And I think you should be incredibly proud of that. I'm frustrated and annoyed and frankly pissed off that so many people will go without your help until we can hopefully resolve the situation that's at hand. 
Is there anything that the people listening to this, watching this can do to be a part of the solution? I would love to say yes, but sadly, no. Uh, the medical governing bodies are too powerful. Uh, uh, there have been two Senate inquiries into bullying in medicine in Australia. Both of them suggested we have a Royal Commission. It's that bad. It's endemic. And it's destructive and it's not good for the public. And yet no Royal Commission. Uh, in my situation, you think about what's happened to me. Uh, the person who lodged the complaint about me, or there were two complaints, okay, the, one of the doctors who lodged a complaint about me lodged it to the medical governing body in that state. Who was the chief medical officer of that medical governing body? It was him. Yeah. Okay, so he lodges the complaint to himself. And then who judges me uh, once that complaint is lodged? It's my enemies. It's the people who lodge the complaints. Yeah. So we have a situation where the accuser, the plaintiff, the judge, the jury and the executioner are all the same person or the same institution. You've got no chance. Once you want to destroy a, a colleague, just write a complaint. You don't even have to put your name to it. It can be anonymous. Uh, and then that person will then assess it. The person who lodged the complaint will assess it. Yeah. And then that person who lodged the complaint, who assessed the complaint, who judged the complaint, will then hand down the, the, the hearing. You think about it. The last tribunal that I've been subjected to, the two people on the tribunal are neurosurgeons. Who, who, who has been... And you don't have to be an idiot. You don't have to be smart, uh, sorry, a genius to, to know who's been driving the uh, campaign against me it's my own colleagues it's neurosurgeons yeah. and they're the ones who are judging me and then serving the, the sentence it's ridiculous it's just ridiculous and there's, there's nothing you can do about it i've had the most powerful politicians right up to the number one politician in australia call me up and say charlie we feel for you is there anything we can do to help and i go yes stop them from bullying me just tell them to leave me alone and let me do what i do best nope it's they can't do anything Man, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. I guess what we can do um, as a group of people who are here and behind you today and for the years to come is just keep rallying behind Charlie Teo, the human. Because <laughs> you, you deserve good things in life, um, as I'm sure so many would say for you. So I want to thank you so much for being here. I want to make sure that in the show notes of today's episode, your social links and the foundation links and everywhere that people can positively connect with you are within the show notes. I want to thank you so much, mate. It's been a pleasure. I oh, know, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Brad. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognise the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling and as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. 
I'll catch you next week.